We're going to read this morning verses 24 through the end of this chapter. And just remind you, we, we began this chapter last week. It's all part of one, one long discourse here, chapter 13, the Olivet Discourse, in which the disciples were marveling at the temple and Jesus said it would all be destroyed and uh, they asked about when. And so Jesus has gone on to um, talk about that event and give pastoral counsel and comfort to his disciples as they anticipate that. We begin with verse 24 this morning. This is God's holy, infallible word. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels, and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. We'll end our reading there this morning. In the 15th century, the Roman Empire was long past, uh, but the Eastern Empire, the Byzantine Empire, was uh, had long had power still, and Constantinople was the center of the Eastern Empire. But in 1453, the Ottomans besieged Constantinople and uh, defeated it. And this was a massive event, a massive shift in in world history. Um, The the Christian Byzantine Empire was ended, uh, never never to be seen again. Uh, That event also generally marks the end of the Middle Ages. So it was an an end of uh, an age, uh, to be sure. Well, last week we, we studied here in Mark 13, Jesus predicting for the disciples, for the Jews, the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, which would be an equally world-changing, cataclysmic event for them, um, losing Jerusalem. And that happened in the year 70, of course. And we continue this morning in this long discourse, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus telling his disciples about the future, but he is assuring them that this great event would not be like the fall of Constantinople, um, the end, the total end of the Eastern Empire, in the sense that the fall of Jerusalem would not be evidence that God's kingdom, uh, which, which was centered in Jerusalem for so long, uh, was failing or was over, or that Jesus reigning in heaven was, was failing or was somehow impotent. In fact, what Jesus is saying is going to happen to Jerusalem and the temple would be evidence that Jesus is reigning. To the disciples, 
uh, that he is in power, that this localized family of God in, in Palestine has transitioned to the long-awaited universal reign of Jesus over all the nations. Uh, that 70 AD would be assigned to that, and that so rather than be terrified of this event, as horrible as it would be, they should be encouraged uh, by it, uh, to see that, that what Jesus had predicted would happen, all that Jesus speaks about that's going to happen in this chapter had happened, that Jesus is on his throne, that he's sovereignly ruling over history, and that they should wait for these things in readiness. So what I want you to see today is that we stand today in, in a very parallel situation. Uh, we also are waiting for Jesus to come in, in a judgment. And there are many things in our world uh, that, that would tempt us to think that he's not on the throne, that he's not powerfully ruling. Um, and so the call to you is the same as to Jesus' disciples, to see that Jesus is reigning in power, um, that, he, that he calls us to wait in readiness and faithfulness. So let's look at this passage together. Look, uh, looking at number one in your outline there, um, in the beginning of what we've read, verse 24, is l- listen carefully as I read again these three things that Jesus tells the disciples to anticipate. Uh, three things in these first sub- few uh, verses here. Number one, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. So there's the first thing, these cosmic signs. The second thing, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. That's the second thing. Then the third thing, and he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Okay? So those three things, these cosmic signs coming on the clouds of heaven in glory and sending his angels to gather the elect. Okay? I just want to reiterate, as I said last week, this, this whole discourse, the whole of chapter 13, is a very difficult passage. Okay? Um, and that, that applies this morning uh, as well. There are, there are fairly uh, wide-ranging views on exactly how to understand what Jesus is saying here, the, the when of it and what he's referring to. Uh, again, I'll reiterate, as I said last week, I don't have the final word on all these details um, or claim all the answers. But I'm going to tell you this morning how I think this passage uh, should continue to be understood uh, as, as we continue in this chapter in its immediate meaning for the disciples. And uh, even so, his instructions to them, I think, should provide clear lessons and application to us, uh, whatever we make of, of some of the details in, in this chapter. Um, last week, I noted on the first 23 verses that there's some disagreement on on the when of what Jesus is referring to. Well, when we come to verse 24, uh, there's less disagreement. There, there's generally more agreement that Jesus is now speaking clearly about the end, about his, his coming again uh, and the end of the world. Uh, I mean, listen to the, the, the language of these cosmic signs. The, the riding, coming on the clouds sounds like maybe a description of Jesus coming again um, and gathering his people. Sounds like perhaps gathering his people at, at the end. And then furthermore, in verse 24, there's um, this reference in those days after that tribulation. It sounds like there's something later uh, relative to what Jesus had been talking about uh, with, with Jerusalem. And, and I'll say up front, I think that could be 
the, the correct way to understand this, this part of the chapter. Uh, Jesus could be talking about uh, his, his coming again. I, I, I don't have absolutely cert, absolute certainty about that. But considering all the evidence, I, I do not think that's the correct way to view uh, this, this teaching of Jesus and the rest of chapter 13. Um, I do not think he's talking about the end uh, or his coming again. And, and for several reasons, but, but here are really the, the strongest reasons I'll put right up front here. There are these, these inescapable, unmistakable statements that Jesus makes about the timing of whatever he's talking about uh, in what we've just read this morning. So verse 29, he says, Even so, you too, when you see these things happening. Now remember, who, who is he talking to? The you is not you. The you is not me. Right? It's Peter and James, John and Andrew came and asked him a question. And he's been talking about what they will see. He says, you will see these things. And then to be even more clear in verse 30, he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I don't think there's any way around what Jesus is saying there, that everything he's talking about, this generation will see. That, and, and many have tried to explain that language, this generation, uh, in some other way. Because it, it sounds at it, it places like Jesus is talking about something far in the future, even the future uh, to us. Um, but I think you have to do gym, exegetical gymnastics to make what Jesus is saying mean something other than you all, this generation, will, will see these things. Um, and that, that can hurt the Christian testimony, really. I, I mentioned several months ago Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, and his famous essay, Why I'm Not a Christian. And he cites various places in the scriptures um, to, to make his case. Well, verse 30 here is one verse that he cites. Uh, taking as many people do Jesus' description in, in verse 24 and following as his, his coming again. And then Jesus clearly, unmistakably says in verse 30, this generation will see it, right? Will not pass away till all of this takes place. And Bertrand Russell says it didn't happen. This is one of the reasons I'm not a Christian. Um, well, I, I, that's one of the reasons I think this is, this is not how we should understand this. Again, verse 33 as well. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. All, all through this passage, he's telling Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they should be ready for the things that he's describing uh, in their lifetime. So since we can't get around those, those statements of timing that Jesus makes, the, the question is, is there a legitimate way to see these three things, these cosmic signs, this coming on the clouds in glory and gathering all the elect? Is there a way to see and understand that legitimately within their lifetime? And, and I think there is. I think it's actually uh, significantly, better, uh, significantly better understood that way. So let's, let's look at each of these things uh, in turn, briefly. So verse 24 and 25, these signs, the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, stars falling, and so on. Um, in my, my translation here, all of these um, words are in all caps, which is the editor of the NAS's way of uh, saying this is a quote from the, New, the Old Testament. So if you have a cross-reference Bible or a study Bible, you'll have certainly cross-references to the places Jesus is quoting. He's not um, making up or coming up with literal descriptions of something uh, in the future, he's he's using uh, language that's that's common to the Old Testament, uh, figurative apocalyptic language from the Old Testament. Uh, here's some examples: Isaiah 13, 
Uh, God's telling Israel about a coming judgment in, in Isaiah's day. Uh, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, uh, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, uh, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The, the sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. The exact same language that Jesus uses here uh, is figurative language from the Old Testament. This is what Isaiah was going to see. Not literally, but it's, it's apocalyptic language for God coming in judgment. Joel chapter 2, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Uh, Joel 3, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. So the Old Testament refers to all kinds of different events, past, uh, with, with this language. Um, there are other examples as well. So this is, this is symbolic language of, of the action of God and, and the judgment of God. Um, so Jesus is saying nothing less, but nothing more specific than that there will be a judgment of God, a great act of God. And again, this is what he's been talking about, that what happened in the year 70 was a great coming of God, a great judgment, uh, an act of God. Um, Secondly, um, verse 26, how do we understand? You will see the Son of Man, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Again, Jesus is quoting directly from the Old Testament. This is what we read from Daniel chapter 7 this morning. Uh, this is from Daniel 7, verse 13. Um, again, uh, here, here's what we read. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. So a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. and he's, He comes to the ancient of days, and, and uh, kingdom is given to him. It's an everlasting dominion that will never end. Okay? It pictures um, Christ receiving a kingdom, receiving all power and all authority. Which, of course, the New Testament says is not something that we're still awaiting. It's that, that happened already. Jesus ascended to the throne. Uh, there, are, there are incredible descriptions of this in, in Ephesians that, that the ladies have been studying, for example. Um, again, we, we also find this language elsewhere in, in the Bible, though. Uh, Isaiah 19, an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. Uh, God is coming on a cloud to judge Egypt. This, this happened 3,000 years ago. Um, and it wasn't descri- describing literally what God was going to do. It's, it's a language of the scriptures for God uh, ruling and reigning and, and, and even judging. Psalm 104, he makes the clouds his chariot. So uh, throughout the scriptures, riding on the clouds is, is figurative language for God ruling and judging from the heavens. We, we have our own figurative language by which we speak about someone exercising authority or judgment. We might say, so-and-so is cracking the whip, right? By which we don't mean anyone has a literal whip at all, right? Uh, they're exercising authority um, and, and judgment. And, and the same is true here. This is just one way the Bible repeatedly speaks of the evident rule of God. He's the one who's riding on the clouds. And, and we see that in, in various uh, things that happen in history. And so... I think this is clearly not a, a literal description of how Jesus is going to come again, riding on a, on a cloud, but it's uh, of the evidence of his ruling and, and his judging. And, and we have to wrestle with the fact that also that this is not the only time that Jesus said to someone during his, life, uh, during his time on earth here that they would see this. Right? So there are multiple other times. Matthew 16, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, 
And, and then he goes on. There's really no more literal way than what Jesus says to, to emphasize that he's talking about the people that he's talking to there. He says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. They, they will see the powerful inauguration of the kingdom of God. And then even more, um, uh, even more strongly in Matthew 26, Jesus tells Pilate, remember what he told Pilate, I tell you, from now on, from now on, you, Pilate, will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's something from that day, Pilate himself would see. Um, so I, not only could this, this verse 26 here, back in Matthew thir- or Mark 13, not only could this possibly refer to something in the next few decades in the, in the disciples' lifetime, I, I think it, it has to, right? Um, he told the disciples, he told the crowds, he told Pilate, they would all see him coming on the clouds with great glory um, in his kingdom. Uh, then thirdly, verse 27, just, just briefly, he will send forth the angels, they will gather together his elect. Um, again, by, by itself, out of context, that, that certainly could sound like it's referring to Jesus' return and, and gathering his people at, at the end. Um, there, there are descriptions like that. But is this not also what Jesus has been doing uh, ever since he, he spoke these words, ever since he ascended to heaven, um, especially? Gathering his people from all over the world. This is what, this is what Christ has been doing for 2,000 years. Um, and it's evidence that he is reigning. So, um, to put all this together, here I think is what Jesus is saying. Some of you will, will survive this generation to see my coming on the clouds in judgment, as it were, against Jerusalem. That would be a powerful display of his rule as king and judge of the world. Right? That would be a, an evidence that he is the one riding on the clouds in glory. And the elect will begin to be gathered from the nations as the gospel conquers the world. And that's, that's a further powerful evidence that Jesus is riding on the clouds in glory in the language of the scriptures. He's, he's reigning from his throne, right? That's what this means. Again, Jesus is not telling us what to look for before he returns again at the last great day. He's telling the disciples in, in their lifetime that they would see powerful faith-affirming evidence that he really is on the throne, that he's ruling and reigning. And so this is, there's clear application to us this morning. You ought to see the same thing. Not only evidence from your own life, what God has done for you personally, but from history. Right? And, and all that God has done, the, the incredible fulfillment of his prediction about Jerusalem and the temple falling in the year 70. Never being rebuilt even to today. The, the powerful evidence of his gathering and building his church over the last 2,000 years. This, the same things are evidence to you that Jesus is reigning. Uh, that he's the one uh, seated on the throne. As you face difficult things that, that tempt you to wonder whether Jesus is reigning, uh, see in history the powerful, incontrovertible evidence that he is. Just turn with me briefly forward to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, uh, verse 54. This is uh, about Stephen. Uh, Stephen has been preaching and uh, preaching the gospel and 
of course, he's about to be stoned because of the response. And this, this sort of acts out for us, I think, what, what we're to, uh, what his disciples were to, to understand from Mark 13. It says, Now when they heard these things, this is the Jews heard the preaching, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And then just before they dragged him out of the city to be stoned, it says, But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Uh, He he saw what Jesus was encouraging his disciples, telling them that they would see with the eyes of faith. Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven in glory. Uh, So this passage is an encouragement to you to see with the eyes of faith. Jesus seated on the throne. Um, Whatever whatever we struggle with, whatever we see on the news, that that Jesus is on the throne. Well, Jesus goes on to give two illustrations um, in in lessons. Um, And so let's look at those then uh, secondly on your outlines there and and consider what lessons and applications we can take from those. Uh, First, letter A there is the fig tree, the lesson of the fig tree, which I'm summarizing as trust the nearness of Jesus. Trust the nearness of Jesus. Uh, Beginning in verse 28, Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. There's there's two things Jesus is affirming in this this section that that I just read. Uh, First is that he is near. That he's near. Some uh, some trees in in Palestine uh, apparently kept their leaves all year round. Uh, a lot of trees do that, I guess, in that part of the world. But but fig trees, uh, like uh, most of our trees here, the non-evergreen trees, lose their leaves every winter, right? And so in the spring, uh, leaves would come on and it was a sign that summer was coming soon, right? Not coming tomorrow, not coming next week, but definitely coming is the next season. And Jesus says, the same is true of these things. Verse 29, what, what things? All, all the things he's been talking about, even wars and earthquakes and rumors of wars and famines, but especially the signs of the rule of Jesus. From, from 70 AD, the, the destruction of Jerusalem, to all of church history, the gathering of his elect, the, the unstoppable growth of his kingdom, all of this is a sign to them that he is near. These things are happening as he said that they would. Uh, he's, he's, again, not saying these things that, that in a way that will give them a timeline. The kingdom of God is not near in, in, uh, in their sense of timing. But Jesus was near in, in, in a sense. He was, he was with them. He was reigning for them. He was coming in judgment, as he said. Um, Jesus says elsewhere, his, his coming again is near in that sense. He, he's, he's with us. His coming is near, and it's, it's the next thing that's going to happen in redemptive history. The next and the last thing. In the book of Revelation, at the end, what does Jesus say about his coming? I am coming quickly, right? Um, 
not in the next minute, not quickly necessarily by our, our measure or desire, but as soon as it's time for him to come, as soon as his purposes are complete in the earth, he will come immediately, quickly. Uh, so when the, the comparison, again, is when, when leaves are on the tree or when Punxsutawney Phil doesn't see his shadow, right? It, it doesn't mean there won't be any more cold days or any more snow or that summer is tomorrow, but it's coming inevitably. It's the next season. So these are all signs or reminders that Jesus rules and reigns. He's Lord of history. Um, and secondly, this, this passage emphasizes uh, repeatedly the disciples don't know when. Right? For them, um, and they don't know when Jerusalem and the temple are going to be destroyed. Or, you know, no matter how we take this passage, whatever Jesus is talking about, his coming again or 70 AD, disciples don't know when and can't know when. Right? Verse 32 again. Uh, of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son but the Father alone. And verse 30, again, he reiterates, you do not know when. Right? Um, our focus is not to be on signs of the end times. We, we, we talked about last time, Jesus said emphatically, there are no signs. Right? You cannot know. All of these things, wars and famines, Jesus says these are non-signs. Right? The end, when you see these things, everything is carrying on as usual. These are non-signs. Not to be guessing you're to be trusting his nearness. Right? That's his point here. Verse 29, trust his nearness is implied. Verse 31, trust his word. Uh, you can't know when of, of the future. You need to be faithful. That's, that's our focus. And incredibly, Jesus says of himself here, even he doesn't know. Right? Even the son does not know, does not need to know the when of the future. In, in his humanity, he does not know everything. He didn't need to know. And as, as we are also waiting for Jesus to come again, waiting through hard things, Jesus is our example in that. Right? He left the timing up to God the Father. And, and Jesus' focus in his life was on faithfulness and trust uh, and, and not having all of that figured out. Uh, the second illustration is, is of the doorkeeper here. And this brings us back to the the basic and repeated seven times instruction of this passage, be on your guard, or be on the alert, or watch out, or take heed, all the different ways that it's, that it's put here. Uh, verse 34, it's like a man going away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming whether in the evening, at midnight, or with the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. So Jesus says the disciples are like a doorkeeper assigned one task, right, to, to watch for the Master's coming, to be ready for him, to be found alert, to be found following his command, watching for him uh, to come. Uh, he doesn't say they're to be trying to guess when or Oh, look at the signs. All these things are happening. Maybe he's coming soon. He says, you're just to be ready. You can't know. You don't know. I don't even know, Jesus says. You're to be living in faithfulness and readiness. And this is, again, is, is the main instruction of this passage. Be on your guard. Be on the alert. And likewise, again, we don't know when he will return again. We are waiting for him as well. 
Um, and and uh, our focus is to be waiting in, in readiness and faithfulness. Jesus tells several parables in a row in Matthew 25 about waiting and readiness, about his being away and his people waiting for him, being good stewards of what he's given to them, um, being found faithful and on their guard when he returns. What, 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 is, what does it mean practically to, to be on your guard, to watch, to be alert, as Jesus says over and over in this passage? Well, I, I wanted to, to explore that finally here. I want you to turn with me to, to Luke's account of, of the Olivet Discourse, Luke chapter 21. Uh, Matthew and Luke's account is, are much longer, and so they include Jesus expanding on this a little bit. Uh, on the be on your guard. And so I just want to take two points briefly from, uh, as we consider that practically uh, from what's said there. So Luke 21, uh, the, the first point is in verse 34. Again, uh, Luke records Jesus saying, same basic command, be on your guard. But then he expands on it, so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. So that, uh, summarizing the, the, the expansion, the, the application of it here in verse 34 as, as avoiding escape or surrender. Avoid escape or surrender, Jesus says, in, in being on your guard. And there are two ways, two things that Jesus points to. Dangerous ways that can happen. The first, he, he says dissipation. Right, avoid dissipation. That's that's just overindulgence or living for pleasure. And he's, he's, he mentions drunkenness as well. Drunkenness is a version of dissipation. Right. Um, this is one temptation we face when all the, the trouble that Jesus promises happens. We turn to some kind of distraction, some kind of dissipation, right, to escape the pain or ease the pain or dull the pain. Uh, Jesus says, don't do that. Stay sharp in serving Christ in all of your vocations. See, see all of your life as a vocation. Uh, continue to obey and represent Christ in, in stewarding to his glory all that he's given to you. Uh, your time, your talents, your money, your opportunities. Don't be dulled and distracted. We can, we can readily think of um, how people escape the hardships and the responsibilities and the weight of life through uh, alcohol and drugs and pornography and things like that. And and, and those are serious forms of what Jesus is talking about. We can also engage in escapism by playing video games or eating uh, or watching TV or other screens or giving ourselves too much to our careers and neglecting other vocations as parents or spouses or whatever it is. How will Jesus find you on that day? Uh, dull and distracted or, or sharp and watching on your guard, living for his return. The, the second thing he mentions in this verse is the worries of life. The, the sense just being, he's encouraging believers not to be overcome, overwhelmed by the sorrows and worries of life, which is also a real threat. Don't surrender to despair as you wait for Jesus' turn, return is, is the basic application here, I think. The believer has every reason to hope. That doesn't mean that believers have constant happiness, but we have constant contentment and, and biblical joy in that sense uh, in Christ. We, we can experience loss. We've 
We've been reflecting on that this morning uh, and yesterday. Um, but the things that you are ultimately living for cannot be lost, right? And are not lost in, in any of God's people. Guard against despair. Remind yourself of the character and the promises of God. Listen carefully to the preaching of God's Word each week. Right? Be called away from the world's cares and back to a godly perspective on the world. And again, be really, really living for Christ in all of your vocations. Uh, not distracted or escaping um, or, or just overwhelmed with, with sorrow and worry and disappointment. And secondly, look at verse 36. Luke 21:36 But keep on the alert at all times. And here's his second application. Pray that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the son of man. And the, the idea of escape there is not what we were just talking about, but but enduring through these hard things. He's encouraging his disciples to pray so that they can endure through these things and stand be faithful to Christ. Maintain faith. And, and grammatically, what Jesus says here is not, uh, he's not speaking of praying for strength, Lord, give me strength, uh, but receiving strength through the means of prayer. Praying so that you will receive strength for these hard things. And again, we have many parallel hard things. Do you, do you understand prayer this way? Um, Perhaps you need, as I often do, to, to stop using prayer as an occasional means to ask God to do something or to take something away or make something more comfortable and to spend time in prayer. To, to be strengthened in spending time with the Lord and focusing your perspective on Him and, 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 and asking for things of ultimate importance. The, the prayers of the Bible, the prayers of Paul especially, are so instructive in this. For us. You know, Paul in his letters mentions prayer a lot, right? The things that he's praying for. He mentions the people that he knows and the people he's praying for a lot. Paul never, knowing them as well as he did, never prays for healing. He never prays that, that Joe would get that job that he wants. He never prays for physical comfort. He never prays that so-and-so would get that salary or, or that God would take away problems. It's remarkable. Not, not that those things are wrong to pray for at all, but, but Paul is constantly praying that, that his readers would be strengthened for joy despite their hard circumstances. He prays that they would have patience in their trials. He prays that they would have hope in their final rest, even though they have enemies of hope in their lives. He prays that they would walk worthy of God's calling despite all kinds of hindrances to that in their lives. And, and, and on and on. So be on your guard. Avoid escapism, distraction, despair, uh, and pray. Uh, keep your eyes, your life fixed on Jesus till He comes again. And our, our Bibles end with His affirmation, Yes, I am coming soon. And Paul or John responds, Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your word again this morning. We thank you for the uh, tender pastoral uh, comforts and assurances of Jesus to his disciples and uh, through them and, and through all of your word to us. So I pray that you would 
Help us, Holy Spirit, to take these things to heart, uh, to live in faithfulness and trust, uh, knowing your nearness uh, and, and eagerly looking for your coming again. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.